invite you to turn with me this morning to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 1 of Ephesians, and we're going to read verses 15 through 23, the last verse of that chapter. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, we read, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and of your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know as well as I do that... um, We are, culturally speaking, in a time of great decision, in a time of of increasing darkness, increasing um, discomfort for the church, increasing transition that seems to be going on about us in our world. We look at the times and we read the newspapers and we hear the news channels and their reporting and we think, what in the world is going on? What in the world are we in the midst of? What in the world is going on around us? And we're tempted so often to despair. We're tempted so often to throw up our hands and say, well, it seems to be over. Jesus must be coming back. I can't tell you how many times... And uh, just in the last few years, I've heard people say, well, it's got to be the end, right? Paul, the apostle, lived in a time of great transition and a time of great darkness in the culture around him. He lived in a time where there seemed to be not very much hope. You had this young church that's kind of fledgling and you know, starting to grow. And yet they were faced with great persecution. They were faced with martyrdom. They were faced with great suffering. They were outcasts. They were considered the scourge of society by the culture around them. And we find this offering of prayer that he makes in the believer's behalf of Ephesus. This coming week... On Thursday, in fact, 
May 9th, we celebrate as the church the ascension of Jesus. 40 days after his resurrection, he ascends to the Father's right hand. And that ought to be a sign of hope for us. That ought to be a sign of remembrance for us that redeemed humanity is sitting at the Father's right hand. Don't forget, He became one of us to save us. And one of us stands before the Father making intercession for us, the Scriptures tell us. He lives forever to make intercession for us. Paul here, in in offering this uh, word of encouragement to the Ephesian believers and mentioning his, the contents of his prayers in their behalf, he calls to their mind the ascension of Christ. He calls to their mind not just the ascension, but the resurrection of Christ and his preeminent lordship over all of creation and especially over the church. He says that Christ has been given the name above all names and that he's been given to be the head of the church, which is his body. We see trouble everywhere. We see darkness surrounding us. We see a culture on the midst of the brink of irrepair, it seems. And yet the scriptures point our eyes to one who is incarnate for our sakes, who is crucified in our behalf, and who is raised up and offers us life. And he was raised up and he ascended to the Father's right hand and he sits at the Father's right hand making intercession for us. That's where our eyes are pointed in the scriptures. In looking at the culture around us, much like Paul's cultural situation, we're really given only three responses. We, we see the culture wars at, at play and really, there are only three things that we can do, it seems, in my mind. We can despair and do nothing. Say, woe is me. We're all undone. And the scriptures tell us that is sin. For the church to just say, it's all over, there's nothing else we can do, is sin, according to the scriptures. The second thing we can do, kind of in the same vein is to withdraw and do what we call hunkering down. The church can just withdraw, retreat from the culture, and maintain its purity, maintain its, its identity, and, and take pride in the fact that, well, there's still a remnant. But forget about the culture. Forget about the world around us. Forget about the loss. Forget about the, the, the world that God created and the people, our neighbors, our co-workers, our relatives and friends. Forget about them, though they've been made in God's image and though they are people for whom Christ died. You know what? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just back away and hunker down. The scriptures also call that sin. You can't find either of these two mindsets in the book of Acts. You can't find either of these two mindsets in all of the New Testament. In all of the scriptures, you can't find these two mindsets as being praised by God. In fact, these two mindsets are judged by God to be wrong. Because these two mindsets don't reflect the mind of God. 
These two mindsets, to despair or simply to withdraw, they are the antithesis of what we see in Jesus. Jesus does not wring His hands and say, all is lost. Perhaps in the end some will maybe make it, Lord. Jesus takes on our flesh. He enters our world of darkness. He embraces it. And so the third option, which seems to be the biblical option, is that we can engage the world, engage our culture, and bring redemption. That is the way of Christ. That is the way of the manger. That is the way of the cross. That is the way of the empty tomb. To engage our world and to offer it redemption. But not just any engagement of the world will do. By, in bringing this to mind, we're not bringing to mind just merely participating in the world around us. We're talking about offering redemption. We're talking about living redemptively. We're talking about engaging the world redemptively. In the culture war, what the world needs and what the church needs is what Paul calls saints. He uses that term, saints, the holy ones, twice in this text. He talks about the love that the Ephesians have for the saints. As much as I hate to admit it, he's not talking about the football team here. But what the world around us needs, what the church needs if it is to engage the world redemptively is more saints, more holy people, more people who have been made holy by life in the living God. And we become saints according to the scriptures simply only by spending time with Jesus. You remember the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospels. Mary and Martha had Jesus over to their home and they were preparing a meal and Martha's running around frantically. She's running around getting everything ready, which is all well and good. And she comes to Jesus and she says... Lord, I'm trying to do all that's necessary for the meal, and yet my sister Mary is sitting here spending time with you. Would you please tell her to get up and to help out? There's work to be done. And Jesus doesn't turn to Mary and say, you heard her, get up, there's work to be done. He turns to Martha and he says, there's only one thing that's needful, and your sister Mary has chosen that I'm not going to take it from her. What's he talking about? He's talking about Time spent with the Lord. He's talking about time spent with Himself. Sure, there's work to be done. Sure, there's much to be done. Sure, there's plenty of things to be done. But the most important thing, where where all the things start, is time spent with Jesus. That is how the saints of God are made. We look at other people's lives and we praise them for how 
great they are and how holy they seem and, and how close they seem to be living with God. And man, wouldn't it just be wonderful to, to be able to have that closeness and we forget the fact that any of us have that offer on the table. The scriptures invite all of us to become the saints of God. But they tell us that that sainthood is acquired. That holiness is offered to us only in as much as we spend time with he who is holy. And the fact is, we need to pray. And we need to pray well. That's how we spend time with Jesus. Yes, there are other things. Coming to church, reading the scriptures. But we need to be people who commune with Jesus. Who spend time with Him in prayer. And Paul here, he is writing to the Ephesians and he tells them a bit of his prayers in their behalf. He says that he doesn't cease to give thanks for them because of what he's heard about them. And he gives to them the contents of his prayers for them. They are people living in a secular world, a pagan world, living in the metropolis of Ephesus. Surrounded by idolatry, uh, idolatry, surrounded by people who don't know Jesus, surrounded by people who look at the Christian faith and scoff at it. And what does he say? He says he's praying for them. There's much to be done. The Ephesian Christians have much work to do. They're going to have to roll up their sleeves and engage the world around them and offer redemption to it. But first, Paul must pray for them. Because they're in need of becoming saints. Paul tells us in the contents of these verses, not just the content of his prayer, but he tells us First, the motivation that he has in praying for them. He tells them essentially what's driving him. And he says that he's motivated by having heard of a couple of things. First of all, having heard of their faith in Jesus, he prays, offering thanks ceaselessly. But he has heard also of their love for the saints, for the church of God, for God's people, the people of God who are being made holy and who have been made holy. Paul's motivated by these two things. And it's interesting that in our increasingly individualistic society, we forget about the second and we prize the first. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with faith in Jesus. You know that. But so often we're so individualistic. We're so individually minded. We're so wrapped up in our own world that we think Christian faith is simply about trust me trusting Jesus with my life and my needs and my wants and my eternity. And 
Everyone else is kind of an afterthought. But Paul says he's specifically praying because he's heard of these two things, their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the saints of God, their love for the body of Christ, the church, their love for one another and their love for the saints around the world. We hear very little from the church in America about the church around the world. We hear very little about the fact that the 20th century, the 1900s, which is which have gone by quickly, and we're now 13 years into the uh, into the 21st century. We 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 hear very little. We have heard very little of the fact that that was the bloodiest century for all the church. The 19 centuries before it, pile them all together, add them all up, and they don't equal the oppression that the church faced and the martyrdom that the church faced in the 1900s. And starting out the 1900s, the world's gurus, the political gurus, the cultural gurus said it was going to be the Christian century. It was going to be the century of peace. We even celebrated the war to end all wars. And what have we seen since? The church around the world today is oppressed more than ever. And we hear very little of it. Not only that, even when we hear it, we think very little of it. You know, we might offer up a, a passing prayer in behalf of a pastor from America, who's originally from Iran, who's sitting in prison for sedition because he was helping strengthen the home churches. We think very little of the church, the underground church in China that lives in constant fear of being found out. In constant fear that the single pages of scripture that they hide might be noticed. Paul says he's motivated because of their faith in Jesus and because of their love for the saints of God. That's what drives him to pray for the people of Ephesus. And that's what ought to be established in our lives as we consider this idea of saintly prayer. Paul tells the Ephesians of his motivation, but he tells them also specifically of his supplication. And by supplication, I'm meaning just a simple summation of what the contents of his prayer are. He tells them that he prays namely for one thing. And that one thing Lifting up his constant thanksgiving in their behalf. He prays that they would be given by God the Father. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. And notice he connects with this with, connects this with the idea of knowing him. He's not talking about some secret wisdom, some secret revelation that's to be given to them. Something that's exclusive for them. He says that he's praying for this spirit of wisdom and revelation because of the fact that they know God and to the end that they might know Him. 
He reminds them their eyes, the eyes of their minds. Some of your translations might uh, say the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened or, or have been enlightened. So he says, I've heard of your faith, I've heard of your love, and I'm reminded that your eyes have been enlightened, and I'm praying then that the Spirit of God would give you wisdom and revelation because you know Him, and so that you might know Him even more. So that's the summation of Paul's prayer. That is the one thing he's praying for them to better know God through His Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian nature of this passage. You you can't read this passage and not think, hey, Father, Son, Spirit, all bound up together in this text on prayer. In that light, we too also should pray. Directed to the Father through the Son and being aided by the Holy Spirit. Paul lays out for the Ephesian believers what is his motivation, what's driving him. He lays out to them his supplication. What's the really the summation of his prayers in their behalf. But he lays out what I'm calling here lastly his destination. Where he's taking them. Where's the end game? Why is he praying for them to better know God? Why is he praying for them to be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing him? And he begins telling them the why. He begins telling them that end game, that destination toward which his mind is focused in the middle of verse 18 and then continuing on through verse 19. He says essentially there are three things, three reasons, three directions that he is wanting to take them in this prayer in their behalf. And he says that The first thing is so that they might know the hope of His calling, the hope of the Father's calling upon their lives. And in hope, He's not just talking about their eternal hope and destiny. He's talking about the hope of God's call upon this life, here and now. He gives us Hope. You've heard me say before that hope, um, hope kind of transcends time because hope is being able to look at the past and what God has done, how He's been faithful to us so that here now in the present we can expect something about the future. We can expect His faithfulness. We can expect His provision. We can expect Him to continue to provide and show mercy We have hope here, today, now because of what He's done in the past. And Paul prays that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be given to the Ephesians so that they would know 
this hope. So that they would know of the hope that they have in being called by the Father. They live in the reality of hope. And he says he's praying, secondly, so that they might know the riches, not their riches, but the riches of his glory, or the glory of his riches. He, look, at, look at the way Paul words this. Where is it? Uh, at the end of verse 18. Praying that you might know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We don't hear that kind of talk very much, very often today. We think of our inheritance. And what's our inheritance? That if we trust Jesus, we'll get all of heaven. We'll get eternity with God. But Paul here is talking about the glory of God's riches and what he inherits in us, the saints. Paul sees that God sees something in us that is to be prized, that is to be treasured, that is to be joyously embraced. And Paul wants the Ephesians to recognize that. To recognize that God is building for Himself in us a treasure and a joyous inheritance. He prays, lastly, with this end in mind, that they would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing Him, so that they would know this hope, so that they would know this glory, and so that they would know, lastly, what I'm calling the limitlessness of His power. In verse 19, we read, continuing the thought of that you might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Notice how he carries on then. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And then he goes on talking about Christ's lordship in the church. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When Paul starts talking about the power of God that is to be realized in our lives, he, he, he can't just stop by saying, God's powerful. He's got to go talking about how powerful he's, he is. And he recalls to our minds the resurrection of Jesus. He calls uh, to our minds the ascension of Jesus and Jesus' lordship, that he is Lord in the church and he's Lord in the world. 
the Ephesians, like us, might be looking around saying, how is He Lord? There's so much darkness. There's so much trouble. Our society seems to be going downhill. Our culture seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. What do you mean Jesus is Lord? Paul says, He's been given the name that is above all names, not just in heaven, but even now, in this age, and also the one to come. And he says, this resurrection, ascension, power of God that knows no bounds, that raises the dead up from their graves, this power is at work in us who believe. The belief he's talking about here is not just some back in the day when I was six and said a prayer. Not some back in the day when I was 14 at youth camp and prayed a prayer. This power, this belief is something that is ongoing and present. The text literally says, toward us who are believing, who today believe in Him who today trust in Him, this power is limitless. This power knows no bounds. This power raises the dead. This power ascends redeemed humanity in the incarnate Son of God to the Father's right hand. And Paul prays that his hearers would be given that spirit of revelation so that they might know these things. I think if we were to boil it all down, we would say that Paul's prayer for the Ephesians as well as his prayer for us and probably even Jesus' prayer for us as he intercedes to us at the Father's right hand today would be that we would know we have great hope because God has called us. That we would know that God's doing something amazing in us and among us. And He sees us as His treasure. He sees His church as a great inheritance. And that His power knows no bounds. So we look out at a world that is dark and we're tempted to despair. We're tempted to say all hope is lost. We're tempted to say, just come Lord Jesus. Get it all over with. But He tells us to look out to the world Because we need to step out into it. He calls us to be light in the midst of darkness. He calls us to be life in the midst of death. He calls us to be love in the midst of hatred and strife. He calls us to be holy people in the midst of an unholy generation. Not so we can hunker down and make it. But so that we can offer that light, that life, that love 
that holiness to a world that he created in a world for which Christ died. So what do you and I do? We engage the world God created. And we engage it with the power of God. We engage it as people for whom Christ died and people who know the hope that they have and know what God is doing among us and know that His power knows no bounds. And we engage it by turning over our communication cards and looking at the back. And by noticing also that those responses are on the back of our bulletin as well. I want to encourage you to do three things. I want to encourage you, first of all, to pray more biblically and consistently. To pray more biblically means to pray more consistently, by the way. But when we read a prayer like this, now this is not the quote of Paul's prayer, but this is Paul explaining the contents of his prayer. When we read that, we ought to measure our prayer life up against it and say, wow, is that the way I pray? Or do I say, Lord, it's been a disastrous week. Here's what I need you to do for me. I need you to do this and this and this and this. Or do we pray with this type of thinking and this type of mindset? Do we pray living in the reality of what God is doing in His church? And the fact that we're called to be saints within that holy church. I want to encourage you to not just pray more. Yes, that too. But to pray better. To pray more biblically. More consistently. You know, prayer is probably... Um, this is just confession, I guess, for me. It's, it's one of the more difficult uh, spiritual disciplines that I've found in life. It's probably because of the lack of faith. I, you know, tip, I often find that, that I feel like even in reading the Scriptures, no, I'm not engaging the world in that, but in reading the Scriptures, I'm, I'm accomplishing something. You know, I'm reading these verses. I'm, I'm plowing through these chapters, or I read that book. But prayer, we're so often tempted to think we're not doing anything. But if you read what Paul is saying here, you realize that prayer changes things. Prayer has power. Prayer has influence. Prayer ushers us into the presence of God and participates in what God's doing. So I want to encourage you to pray more biblically and consistently. I want to encourage you, secondly, several of you are already doing this. I know this because I see Catherine posting on Facebook almost every day. Listen to the breakpoint.org commentaries. Go to just breakpoint.org. There, there's a little tab for commentaries, or you, you can type in breakpoint.org slash I think BP commentaries, 
is what it is. But Monday through Friday, they're three and a half minutes. They're not long at all. And they're always related to what's going on in the world around us. Not, not in, in, in a hunker down withdrawal type way, but in a, a redemptive embracing type way. What is going on in the world around us and what do we as the church do? How do we live? Trying to answer the question of uh, the, the philosopher, the, one of the greatest philosophers of the 1900s, Francis Schaeffer. Trying to answer that question of how then shall we live? So listen to those. Three and a half minutes. Supplement your, your scripture reading and your prayer time with, with listening to that. It'll, keep, it'll help you to keep a pulse on what's going on around you and practical ways of how you can be a redemptive person living in, in a world that is um, increasingly dark. And then lastly, I want to encourage you to study the scriptures to better know Christ, his work, and his will. Whether that means you need to increase your scripture reading a little bit, whether that means you need to slow down in your scripture reading and let it marinate a little bit more. Or whether that means you need to um, revamp how you read the Scriptures. I want to encourage you to study the Scriptures with a mind of knowing Jesus, better understanding how He works, and better understanding what He wants for the world. Because in doing that, we're able to wrestle with the question of, what do I do? What's his will for me? What's his work through me? How, how do I live redemptively in him? Please mark your responses on your communication card and drop them off in the offering plate at the back of the sanctuary when we close. But please hang on also to your bulletin and... Um, Remind yourself throughout the week of what those responses were. Let's pray. Father, as 